This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 29, Episode 8. Coming up on the show, we've got the spectral contagion frequency, the devil on the rooftop, and encounters with the Australian Birdmen. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. This has to be one of the most unsettling cases that I've ever gone into. And for this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the weird paranormal zones around Australia. They seem to be associated with certain desert areas, arid regions, uh, but that have high content of minerals in their ground. I don't care about any of that. I care about birdmen. Well, the birdmen come later. It just so happens (laughs) that this particular story that I'm going to go into, I pulled it from this old newspaper report or this old magazine that I pulled up because I've been looking for more Australian encounters and it's just incredible. It happened back in the 1920s. Does this mean you've taken the uh, the Corey... What's his name? Peter Corey. No, what's his name? Oh, God, I've forgotten his name. The, for, the forehead guy. <laughs> David Wilcock. David Wilcock. Have you taken the David Wilcock pill and no. the Corey Good pill of the blue avians? Oh, That's the classic no. bird man. No. Is, there, no. uh, is there blue avians in Australia? In fact, how dare you bring this story <laughs> down to that level of absurdity that is just honestly bad, just atrocious of you to do so. No, this is a really incredible encounter that was provided to the brilliant Australian researcher Bill Chalker uh, back in 1985, and it ended up being a little bit of a saga. Uh, I'll tell you more about the story as we start going into the show, but essentially it relates to this story of a, of a young farming family that essentially walked into Australia's Skinwalker Ranch, or oh. Australia's answer to Skinwalker Ranch, and it's infested with birdmen. Yeah, that's what you told me earlier in the week when you found this. This is like our Skinwalker. It really is, and it kind of fits with these other zones that I'm going to go into. But before we do that, what have you got coming up in the Plus Extension? Oh, I found a fantastic story. It's from Jenny Radcliffe, and there's a new book out from her called People Hacker, Confessions of a Burglar for Hire, which pretty much gives away her profession. I told you earlier in the day that she was a penetration tester and immediately you As thought... As in what, IT? Yeah, immediately you thought, okay, so she she's a hacker. She mm. infiltrates networks because that's commonly how the term penetration tester is used. Yeah, pen testers. Uh, but she's a, a purely a physical penetration tester. Like She will... Her job is to test a company security, maybe a a, a rich individual security, uh, a government building perhaps. Her job is to try and find the weak points in their security system and physically get into the building and physically take control. So she's Jennifer Garner? Yeah, it's pretty much, it's very much like that. And she snuck into nuclear power plants. She snuck into billionaires' homes. Really? She's snuck into uh, major corporate uh, buildings. She's worked all around the world. There's stories of her breaking into places in Singapore, you know, infiltrating somewhere in Hamburg. I'm going to tell you this incredible story of her origins. And it's just really, really fascinating because the first thing 
that you would want to ask someone who does this for a living is how on earth did you get into this? Like, how do you get into this this role? Yeah, it's a rather unique field, I'd imagine. And she says now she's very much retired. She mostly does coaching on um, what's the what's the word they use? The social engineering. Yes. Yeah. Um, but now she can find because a lot for a long time she didn't talk publicly about what she did. It was just she had a fixer who would find her work and then maybe a CEO would put her in touch with other companies. And she did a lot of this under the radar. But now she's finally talking about these almost a thousand buildings, a thousand companies. She's infiltrated. And we're talking, you know, banks, serious, serious security. And the way she goes about it is pure genius. Okay. It's pure social engineering. It's really fascinating. I'm looking forward to getting into that later on the show. Well, let's just jump into this research that I've been doing this week. And much of what we're going to be talking about, in fact, all of what we're going to be talking about, uh, relates to unusual phenomenon that occurs here in Australia. And only recently, you know, I've been talking about some of the, the weird sightings and activities that people have had and how Australia compares per capita to the rest of the world or particularly to the United States. We seem to have, you know, the same amount of reports as what other people do. It's kind of proportionate. UFOs, you mean? UFOs, exactly. But not just UFOs, also any type of unusual aerial phenomena, uh, glowing balls of light, this kind of stuff that gets seen uh, and is unexplained. Uh, but then, you know, I, that's not enough for me. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. I want to find stories that kind of start crossing over into the high strangeness, the more obscure, the more strange. Didn't you just tell the AI to give me an amazing story and it gave you this? <laughs> no, see, <laughs> this is what I did start. I did start out with the AI, right? And the problem, the biggest problem I have with the AI is that even when you tell it, to find you something real, <laughs> it just makes up stories. It just makes things up. And so it's, it's actually, a bullshit artist. It's making my work harder because, you know, when I cover stories on the show, yeah, sometimes the sources can be quite, um, you know, unreliable, but at least it's usually a person claiming that they've had that experience. Yeah. When you're using the AI, it's just like, oh, well, no, this particular event took place on this date. And when you go and search for it, there's just yeah. no reference to it we're whatsoever. We're talking about ChatGPT. That's right. If you're not yeah. aware. So and you can ask it questions like, um, you know, I've just researched this story on uh, this burglar for hire. Give me more stories or books about penetration testers and it'll list and it off lies. five and three of them just don't exist. Yeah. They're just made up. Oh, it links me to this newspaper article. So I go <laughs> searching through archives of newspaper articles to find, and there's no such thing that took place. But it does occasionally spit out gold. You know, this is a whole spinning, you know, the the chaff into something that's Polishing a little bit Polishing a turd, yeah, right? our show is based on. <laughs> so I started pulling out some unusual reports that relate to the sightings of men in black throughout Australia. And it turns out that men Men in black and men in white have been with us for a very long time. And in fact, if you look into the archives of the researchers like Bill Chalker, uh, Keith Basterfield, Paul Dean, these are all well-known, exceptional uh, ufological researchers here in Australia, uh, they find that there is a, a history that precedes the, the modern UFO era. So we've got 1947, that's when it really kind of took off around the world. But if you look into the reports that come through, there's a whole range of people that have described odd things happening since colonial days or even further back. And then if you go and speak to the Aboriginal communities, they report exactly the same thing. And what's really fascinating is a lot of it relates to two things. It's kind of really integral. It's, it's really unusual. 
Yes, we know about things like the Mimin lights, which are these balls of light that show up uh, in the distance and they kind of hover and they move in strange ways. They're sometimes described as being in the size of you know, a basketball. Sometimes they're a little bit larger. If you're driving along a remote highway at night, sometimes they'll follow you. Sometimes they'll pace your vehicle, do that kind of stuff. But there are anecdotal reports of these Minmin lights being, and that's not just in this particular area of Queensland where they're known in Bula, uh, it's actually all across our country. People have actually seen Minmin lights in association with crop circles in the ground. Yeah, right. Right? So they're generating crop So crop circles have been showing up in Australia for quite a long time as well. Uh, they go back in Aboriginal folklore and oral traditions. There's uh, depictions of these weird things showing up in grass fields. Uh, and sometimes some of these stories are the Aboriginals saying, and they were saying this to the settlers, you know, back in the 1800s when, you know, they had, uh, you know, they were speaking with the settlers that, oh no, like these lights, these are the lights of the ancestors and they leave, you know, they leave information or they leave knowledge, but we stay clear of it. Like we stay away from it. And funnily enough, the settlers, you know, in the 1800s that were seeing these things as well, which were being terrified by them, they started to build up their own folklore surrounding this that kind of had this feeling that it was connected to some type of um, like a death that had taken place. So you've already got the Aboriginals that have been here for a long time saying it's spirits, like it's ancestor spirits. And then you've got settlers that are coming from a different culture that kind of along, along the same lines are reporting the same kind of thing. So there are many reports that you find where, uh, yes, you have crop circles showing up, but it seems like that something about the particular location, the location seems to have a paranormal element to it. And it's odd. In many of these cases, it seems to relate to desert locations or even semi-desert locations and also locations that have a large volume of minerals in their ground. So whether it's copper or, or something like that, uh, in the case of the town Kapunda, which I'm going to go into, or uh, a high water table. So there's all these kind of elements that start crossing over into the realm of things like telluric currents and that kind of idea. And if you recall a while back, Ben, I was describing on a story where we were talking about telluric currents. There was this principle put forward of this hypothesis, I suppose, that telluric currents, which are not scientifically recognized by any means, but there's this idea that there's this hidden energy underneath the ground that moves through. It's kind of like feng shui in a way. It's, it's kind of these hidden earth energies. And if you've got one that intersects through a graveyard and then moves down a hill, and if you've got a body of water, that can cause a haunting to take place mm. If you're over that body of water, I think telluric currents are pretty much recognised in science. They're just science. They're just understood as electric currents. Well, I should point out what I'm when I mean telluric currents. I mean in this concept of it transmitting, mm. you know, the energy of spirits. Or yes, you're totally right. But I mean in the in the term of it being paranormal yeah, phenomenon. It's, it's just considered an extremely low frequency current. That's right. Yeah. But the and idea, telluric just is from the Latin earth, apparently. Yeah, because it's earth energies. Exactly. Um, but obviously from a scientific perspective, you know, if you're suggesting that, you know, you bury people in a graveyard and somehow their spirits remain and can be transferred through the earth with energies, it's something that's not going to be readily accepted by, by modern science. But this kind of does tie into um, some of these stories I was looking at about this little town called Kapunda. Now, Kapunda has this really fascinating kind of history attached to it because it was Australia's first mining town. Uh, it really is an incredible location. It was established back in 1842, uh, soon after there was a discovery of significant concentrations of copper. Now, this is remote and harsh land. It's just on the edge of a desert zone, and it has a very sinister reputation attached to it. There's a couple of elements that come in here with this story. This particular town, Kapunda, in South Australia, 
is known as being the most haunted location or the most haunted town in Australia. And it has this reputation because even though it's a small town, everyone in this town in some way is either themselves besieged by ghosts or know someone who's been besieged by ghosts. And it has this history of madness and suffering and misery that kind of comes about because when the town was established, it was a, when it was a mining town, it was harsh times. Mm. It was harsh times. People died. Um, the Catholic Church established a church there. It was called St. John's. And I think even Mary MacKillop, who is now um, a saint, she was there at one particular point, I think back in the uh, 1870s at some point. But this place uh, has been researched by the writer Kevin McNeil, and he spent a decade researching some of the reports that come out of here. And Apparently, most of this actually seems to focus around this particular church that became a reformatory. So the church, when it was built in 18, uh, roughly around 1860, the first priest that was there died suddenly while he was on duty. Now, that can happen. Like, these are colonial kind of times. You know, that, that's normal. That kind of happens, except for the fact that in the following four years, four priests also died while they were at that location, suggesting that there was something sinister about this. What's now, in the food and water? Well, that's the question, right? It could be, well, is there something to, in the water? But it wasn't, it was just the priests. No one else seemed to be okay. dying. So what is it with that? But it's because it seems like this particular location that this church has been built on uh, seems to be a magnifier for these hidden energies, these currents of this particular location. And it might have something to do with the high water content and the high concentrations of copper and other minerals that are in this location. So in 19 or 1892, the building that was St. John's actually closed down. The um, It was closed by the church and it became a girls' reformatory school. And essentially what this one, it's a reformatory, like it's quite you send young girls, that you know, teenage girls that are, you know, losing their way and they're sent out to this place. But unfortunately, uh, it was connected with, you know, there was a bad priest there and there was you know, pregnancies Uh-oh. and a lot of darkness, a lot of, a lot of very bad things happening that was covered up by the church at the time. And in fact, uh, there is a graveyard which is near this church, which is, you know, in the pretext of what we're talking about is reformatory school. Because these young girls were treated so badly, they were also buried in unmarked graves that are further back down towards the you know, the bottom of the hill. So there's there's a lot of restless spirits. There's a lot of evil afoot. Absolutely. There's a huge amount of restless spirits that are in this particular location. Now, over the years, and there was this fantastic documentary that was put out in the early 2000s. Uh, I think Warwick Moss was the, the one who headed it up, you know, well-known in Australia in this kind of field. Uh, he uh, went in with a group of researchers and spoke to people like Kevin McNeil uh, and other people that claim to be psychically inclined to some of the experiences that they've had in this particular location. And one comes from Rick Thiel, and I want to play you some audio from him about what happened to him, because Rick Thiel decided for whatever reason, because he knew the reputation of this particular church and this reformatory, that one night he would go wandering about, right? And he wouldn't go wandering about the graveyard. He would go and wander about the unmarked graves or at the bottom of this hill, which seemed to be marked by this large palm tree. And the stories are, is that when you cross into this location, and many people, even skeptical people report this, that you feel the energy of the location change. And this is important, right? Because it seems to have something to do with the energy that's here. And so people say that it suddenly becomes cold. It's kind of cliche in that context, but there's also a foreboding, horrible feeling. And it's almost like, a barrier 
right? You can step onto one side and you can feel it. You step away and it goes, it disappears. It's this really kind of weird effect that takes place. And so um, because he wanted to do this, apparently this barrier, like he wanted to go and explore, this barrier has a reputation for tagging people, right? Now that's, What do you mean? That sounds absurd, right? It sounds completely absurd. What do you mean tagging people? When people cross this barrier at particular times, they get tagged by an entity and something follows them home. Like whatever they pick up in the graveyard, it follows them home and it manifests physically at their homes. So this is Rick Thiel describing a knock that he got at his door one night after he had just been through this graveyard and he wanders outside to find a form standing in his front yard. She basically gave me a hug and basically it was, it was really quite casual, like, uh, oh, just in the neighbourhood, thought I'd call in. <laughs> and I actually thought somebody had said hello and it just sort of flitted off. And then I realised that um, I'd, I was standing in this drenching cold rain and I came inside as white as a ghost, um, no pun intended, and, and I just stood there and everybody, suddenly a couple of people looked at me and said, what's wrong? My hands were boiling hot and absolutely dry. And it was four degrees that night. Um, and where she'd hugged me was dry. Oh, that's strange. Isn't it what weird? What a polite, friendly ghost, though. Well, it, it, this kind of ties in with the idea that because there was so much misery, and this is really emphasized, like it was horrible for these young girls that um, they're unable to rest, right? But the other idea with this as well is it's not just that. I mean, that might be one factor. The other factor is there is something very specific about this particular location, which is trapping spirits in this location. Like they're, they're trapped. Once they pass over because they're in a certain energy band or frequency, I don't know, they can't move beyond it, right? But these ideas of frequencies and energy bands and all this kind of stuff... Where are you getting this from? Who's saying this? This is from a whole group of researchers that have been looking into this. So because of the high mineral content, right? It's all focused on the myth. So we have to go to Stephen Guth, right? So Stephen Guth, uh, he's well known for doing a whole heap of research into Canberra and its geomantic realities, right? And I've touched on his work a little bit in the past. But essentially what he's looked into is the idea of energy like it's feng shui right it's like having energy lines and long lines and all being set up and, and canberra, the history the history of our nation's capital is that it was designed according to freemasonic principles and that's aligning to these energies every building is in a very specific place and there's if you look at our and capital from three mountains a bird's eye view it all lines up with some kind of pentagram <laughs> yeah. well i would not know very masonic yeah, yeah it's, it's masonic it's masonic it's right? like washington dc but the argument that's put forward by stephen guth is that uh the creators of this city knew about the the energies and how to channel these energies because right. there's three particular hills you've got mount ainsley you've got black mountain and you've got capitol hill and so being you know canberra or canberra is australia's you know powerhouse it's where our, our politics are um, um, the idea was is that you can utilize these energies and these powers to better govern govern a nation, right? But then there's also the sinister ideas about it. But the reason why I mention, and I'll link to his stuff in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can go and read it, because he's got these great write-ups, some of the, which was published in New Dawn magazine mm. you know, 20 years ago now, um, just really highlighting some of the weirdness. But he throws in these anecdotes, right? And so what he used to do is Stephen was actually like a geomantic uh, tour guide 
Okay. in Canberra. <laughs> and so what he would do is he would take people around these particular locations in Canberra and he'd take them up each of these mountains and get them to describe, you know, how they feel. And it's really weird. He says the three mountains, Capitol Hill is now essentially gone. It's been replaced by Parliament House. Like we built our, our, mm. our new Parliament House into it. Um, but the three mountains actually have their own like animistic personalities. And they exude certain energy. So if you go to one particular place, you might feel more calm and more relaxed and easygoing. But if you go to another location, you might feel aggressive and, uh, you know, contrary. And, and, and he, he says this as well. He's like, he's taken people on these tour guides and they kind of get uppity when they go to a certain location because of the energy that's coming yeah, through. Right. And he points out something really fascinating. So Canberra has this uh, old parliament house, right? And, and that was originally the one that was part of the Masonic plan. The, the new Parliament House is yeah, out, outside of the original design. Exactly, right? So Old Parliament House is fascinating. If you go into Old Parliament House, he says you just sit for a few minutes and just meditate, like just meditate. He says you actually feel, if you're sensitive to it, an energy that kind of passes through here and it's calming and it's mm. um, you know clearing of your mind, which is everything that you would want for parliamentarians. It's everything you would want for your government to be. But he says the new Parliament House is energetically chaotic. Like the way that they built this thing, he almost implies that it's, he doesn't say it directly, but it's almost demonic. It's done on purpose. It's been some kind of um, an, like, anti-harmonic um, Yes, it causes <laughs> design. chaos. It's causing yeah. energy chaos. And it causes a blockage and all these things that have been set up in Canberra for energy to flow in a certain way. It's all flying about wildly. When normally, if you were able to see it, you should just see these clean lines like an electrical circuit moving. Mm. But now it's like a sparking transformer about to explode because of what they've done with this. This is a good example that kind of sets up this idea of these locations and how these locations can generate this kind of stuff. And of course, there's all these stories out there about people uh, seeing ghosts wandering through the halls of Parliament House, both Parliament Houses, Old Parliament House and New Parliament House. So it's the energy that's in these locations which can apply to these other spots that we're talking about. So going back to you know some of the experiences that people have had at Kapunda, you've also got people like... Uh, Laurel Marshall. Now, she's a skeptic, right? She's a skeptic and she didn't believe any of the stories that people were reporting. And she was like, oh, I don't care. You know, so she goes out to the graveyard herself and wanders through one of these graves. She doesn't cross the barrier by the sounds of it, but she does end up seeing something. Take a listen to what her experience is. Well, I was out at the reformatory. It would have been a couple of years ago now. And I actually went out, I was doing a, a newspaper article for one of the local papers. And uh, I decided that I would actually look at some of the early graves that actually are out at the reformatory. And uh, basically looking straight ahead on the left-hand window of the front of the reformatory, I saw a black figure of a man pass through there with quite a wide brim hat on and like a long black cloak. And I wouldn't have believed it, but I was actually with somebody else at the time. And they looked at me and said, did you see that? And I looked at them and said, did you see that? So the description she's providing there, right, it sounds a bit like, is it a hat man? Like, what are you seeing? No, apparently other people have been seeing this throughout the town, right? This is apparently the ghost of Monsignor George Williams, who was a priest at this particular location until 1920. And this location 
is um, it's a ruins now. It's an absolute ruins. There's no roof on the top of it. Mm. It's complete. It's not like it's someone is living there and you've seen something walk. It's actually a figure. Like there's something which is non-human or at least no longer human, which is in this particular location. But then the story becomes even more strange and ties in with these energies because when the the reformatory was shut down, you had another bitter, angry priest that was at this location. Uh, Even the place was falling apart. He stayed there until 1929, demented and insane. And the idea is, is that the energy that was radiating, radiating out of this particular location is what drove him to this insanity before, you know, any of the really strange activities started taking off. And from 1920 and or 1929, that's when it really kind of stepped up and more people around the town started seeing things. But this particular form with this hat, as I was saying before, has shown up in people's homes. There are people, there's like the local pub where people have seen it. Uh, you've got, there's a, a police station and courthouse where similar types of activity are taking place. But then you've got people like Donna Warner who says that, you know, she just moved into this particular house and all of a sudden her home was besieged by these unseen entities that actually started to reveal themselves to her children. When something happens to you immediately, it, it frightens the life out of you. But when it happens on a daily basis, you've got your children screaming, coming out of rooms through the day because there's a man in the room, or your child wakes up a week after Christmas screaming because there's a little boy in bed with him. And you know very well that there's an elderly man that walks around here, you've seen them yourself, or you know that there's a little boy drowned a hundred years ago in our underground rainwater tank, you know they're here. You have clocks that don't work, that tick, you have cupboards that, that open and shut in front of you in broad daylight. You have images walk past the window and you know there's no one here. You know, we had a pram went up our driveway 20 foot on a, on a day exactly like today with very little wind. We can't explain that. So the activity that's happening in this town is surreal. And it's not just people jumping on the bandwagon. It's people that have been living here for a long time that are reluctant to come forward with their stories, but then find other people in the town talking about it where they're willing to actually express, you know, what they're feeling about this and and what they're seeing. And the question is, well, why? Like, why is this particular town? It can't just be that it's the, what, high water and high mineral content. No, the idea here is that much like what I was describing with Stephen Guth's research about very you know, clean lines, the way that things are established to move energy uh, in a very energetic location, this town was built really quickly, extremely quickly because it was part of a gold rush. And oh, because right. it was on this particular location, it was created in chaos. And the idea is here is essentially it has created almost like a vortex of energy that things can't escape. Anything that becomes energetic, like a spirit or a ghost, it's trapped in that particular location. What from the original intention of the construction? That's right, because it was so chaotic. It was extremely, and because this is a particular location which the geomancy of the site was ignored because they found copper there. And so this ties back into what I was talking about earlier with some of the stories with the Aboriginal Australians. They, not that they had a particular form of geomancy, but they understood that certain locations had an energy signature to them and they would steer clear of these particular locations. Now, I couldn't find any details that uh, describe this exact location, but it was uh, relatively uninhabited before the finding of copper in this location. So why is that? Is it just because it's a, you know, a semi-desert kind of location or is it that people understood that it was a location that you shouldn't go into and hundreds of years later, 
these are the ramifications of what's mm. going on. In fact, these sightings, this uh, particular documentary when I'm playing audio from, this is from 23 years ago, 24 years ago. If you look today for Kapunda, you find report after report after report on forums and ghost hunting websites and that kind of stuff describing exactly the same kind of phenomena. How far part. is it from us? Oh, it's got to be, I don't know exactly, it's got to be, what, 900, even longer, 1,000 kilometres? Okay, like we're not going then. No, we're not going there. I was there. hoping you'd say five, but even then, it's pushing it. <laughs> i got stuff to do. But then it gets sinister, right? So I wanted to play you. So Kevin McNeil is one person who's done a lot of research into the stories that come out of here. And I just want to describe one thing. I want him to describe one thing because you can go, oh, well, look, yeah, they're, they're hauntings and they're kind of scary, but they can't hurt you. Well, apparently they can I call the pregnant angry house and that is a house where young women uh, who go to live there, if they become pregnant while they're there, there's a whole lot of very nasty poltergeist type activity which turns into something even nastier. When I say poltergeist it means that crockery starts flying around the room and chairs get moved etc. But eventually it gets to the stage where not only the oppression is so bad in the house but the women will start to bleed from, from everywhere. And um, on one occasion, a woman was taken, bundled into a car by friends to, to head up towards the hospital. And by the time they got halfway up the road, up Main Street, uh, the, uh, the bleeding had stopped. And when they got to the hospital, they couldn't find any reason why she should have been bleeding in the first place. So I mean, this happens often enough that he's got a special nickname for the house? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, so uh, I was looking into it. This house was said that uh, they wouldn't rent it to any woman of a childbearing age. Really? Because of just how much this phenomena was taking off and causing trouble for people. So whatever it was inside was quite angry and, and ticked off. And it's just, um, it's strange. Like, it's just strange because it fits in with this greater scene of strange activity that's happening in this location. But it's not isolated, right? Yeah, you've got this one particular location where this stuff is taking place. There's another town, another small town, that's got the same kind of properties where this stuff is taking place. And that's where we head to Victoria. So we head from South Australia over into the state of Victoria to, again, another semi-desert kind of location, allegedly with high water tables. And we do know from soil analysis that's been conducted at Monash University, a leading university in Australia, that there's a high but not unusual mineral content at this particular location. It's been associated with orbs of light and crop circles. And so we go to the farmer or the, the, the farmers, Nance and Rex Jolly, who claimed that they were wheat farming and they would, you know, obviously sow the crops and have all the wheat grow up, but they would get contractors in to come and cut it. And they said on this particular day that they'd sent their contractors out and they'd done a couple of acres of fields and the crop was like, a, it was a buster crop. It was really great. And one of the contractors stopped and he came running up to the farmhouse and he seemed to be really excited. And she's like, what's going on? And he said, you have to come and see this. You have to come and see this. And he found 11 crop circles that were in one of these fields that had been inspected the night before. And somehow these things had appeared. Listen to the description of, of what was seen. What we discovered was 11 rings. Uh, they were in a, in a half moon shape. Uh, the largest were at the top of the ridge away from the, the homestead and as they as you walk closer towards the homestead and the fence uh, the rings got uh, consequently smaller. John Ocatel found that the wheat itself was not damaged in any way. The stalks were not broken, just bent at the base. Somehow they'd been woven into an intricate pattern, something like a straw basket. 
As for the soil around the circles, it was sandy and soft as normal. But inside the circles, the soil was very different indeed. It was as hard as a rock. It was tough work taking soil samples. In fact, they had to use a crowbar to prise them free. The samples were sent off to Monash University in Melbourne for analysis. So classic crop circle stuff. It's it's not breaking the stalks. It's you know exactly. folding them neatly, weaving them together. It's not doesn't seemingly uh, is microwaving anything. It's not steaming or heating anything. There's no burns. But what's important to note there is this element of it uh, being woven into like a a basket kind of formation. And what this is similar to is actually the reports that came out of uh, the Tully saucer nest up in northern Queensland from 1966. And what was you know, interesting about this is when you look at all these cases, right, there's these weird similarities. And the similarity in this particular case is on that one, you've got a farmer who was going out or a contractor going out and harvesting the field. Well, the Tully, the Tully saucer nest was the same thing. You had a young man, I think he was in his mid-twenties. Um, he had gone, uh, George Pedley was his name. He was out riding his tractor through banana fields when he heard a strange hissing noise. He goes rushing over to where the hissing noise is, thinking that it might have been a tractor or something, to find this saucer-shaped craft taking off into the sky. As he looks down to where this saucer had taken off, it's a lagoon, right? It's known as the the horseshoe lagoon because it's in the shape of a horseshoe. And here is all these matted grass reeds, but they're all kind of woven in this clockwise, or I can't remember if it's clockwise or anti-clockwise, but it doesn't matter, in the same direction. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. But what was coming out of that particular report is that there'd been high strangeness of people seeing lights in the town. Other farmers had seen strange lights over it. Uh, in that particular circumstance, yes, they had seen a saucer-shaped craft, whereas in the case of, of Victoria, they hadn't. But the element is, is that there was a sound, there was a weird frequency that was associated with the saucer nest in Tully. And it just so happens that there may have been also a frequency that was associated with this crop circle that was found on the Dolly's farm. So this is back in summer of 1989, I believe. And they found, uh, I'll get to the frequency in a moment, but they also found a very unusual, unexplained magnetic anomaly at that location. And there was more. The university computers revealed that there was an unexplained magnetic charge emanating from one corner of the farm, right where the circles had formed. Armed with this new information, John Ockertel headed back to the Jolly's wheat field. He pinpointed the exact spot and began a new series of tests. 
what we found was an, a ring. Uh, it looks like a, a coiled snake um, uh, with a bit of a head on it, uh, and it was very magnetised to the extent where if you ran a normal compass, which is very unusual over it, it would swing the compass needle. To this day, John Ockerdell can't explain that magnetic charge. It, like the crop circles, remains a mystery. So what could these anomalies be? Is it being generated by the crop circle itself or is the crop circle just a symptom of the particular area? Is the area is almost like a volcano and energy reaches a certain point and yes, it comes out in these weird geometric fashions, but it's almost, it's explosive. It's coming up out of the ground in this fashion, generating all of this weird phenomena, generating balls of light in the sky and strange sounds. Uh, perhaps... But then, um, you know, there's also similarities to these other reports. And this doesn't seem to be something which is you know, contemporary. It's not a modern phenomenon. This thing has been happening for a long time. Um, so let's just play some audio, though. I want to play some audio of where this has been found in other locations around the world. A farmer, a local farmer that was uh, near this particular farm, wandered into the circle. And when he wandered into the circle, he was hit with a sound that made him feel extremely sick. He recorded that sound. Oh, he recorded it. Okay. There was to be one further piece of evidence that would prove even more mysterious. Another local farmer had noticed his sheep refused to go anywhere near one of the circles. And when he went to investigate, he heard a strange noise. A noise that literally made him sick. That farmer had the presence of mind to record the sound. Great, now we get to have get sick as well. <laughs> the sound we played you earlier. We then got that tape and when it had it analysed, uh, and what they did, they scrubbed all the, the machine noises and the noises on the tape, and they discovered there's a, a, a frequency of 5.12 kilohertz. When John Ockertel studied the computer breakdown of the sound, there was another surprise, another discovery. The sound reminded him of one recorded by a BBC television crew while they were filming at the site of a crop circle in England. A BBC crew attached a radio microphone to Pat Delgado. As he walked in the circle, it picked up mysterious sounds. No, it's here. That's, that's a terrible noise, just as you stand in the centre. You're getting a noise there, Richard. Very, very bad indeed. Yeah, I can, I can hear it here. I can feel it here. So on the opposite side of the world, wow. with another crop circle, it's got almost the same frequency being heard in this location. And in that BBC audio, they actually describe it as being like an electronic sparrow. But it also generates feelings of ill will, uh, feeling uncomfortable, there's something about these particular frequencies. The 5200 hertz, that's pretty high frequency. And very high frequency. Very annoying. Yes, yeah. Uh, let's see if we can generate. Was it Was it 5.2 something he said? 5.2? I think he said 5. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's it. That's, that's it. a triangle, square, sign. That's a sawtooth. That's horrible. It's hot. <laughs> it's dogs just going bananas. But you know what? I'm glad that you played that and I'm glad you said that because this fits in with other locations where, you know, you heard there that the farmers said his sheep wouldn't go anywhere near it. It's like the animals know, they pick up on this and they, they stay quite clear of it because they're seeing something or they're hearing something or they're feeling something that is outside our, our range. Now, there's one final piece of audio that I want to play for you from here because you could go, well, 
you know, w- what could this be? I mean, yeah, as I described the volcano idea, it could be the energy which is bubbling up from underneath, but could it be something from above? And it just so happens that there was another local farmer by the name of Eric Wilson who was sitting down one evening just a couple of nights after these crop circles had appeared and said that his dogs started going crazy outside in a way that he'd never heard before. His dogs went absolutely nuts. I came outside to investigate what the problem was and saw this light above uh, over the dam. Eric's daughter, Jeanette, recalls that this blinding light shone over the farm for a minute or two. We could see this object hovering in the sky with a flashing light on the top and a a dome um, across the other side of the dam bank. Then, just as suddenly as the light and the object appeared, they simply disappeared. So the reason why I played that is because it ties in with this idea that UFOs are responsible for crop circles. But this UFO showed up a couple of days after the crop circles appeared. So the suggestion is, one, is the crop circle or the frequency that's coming out of that particular circle acting as some type of homing beacon, drawing these things in? Or is it that the the lights in the sky and these strange craft are coming up through this bubbling of this opening of a portal or opening of the energy that's allowing, which is manifesting as a crop circle, but it's allowing these things to come through. All speculation. We've got no idea. We have it no idea. It could be a charging station. Maybe it's like a Tesla charging station. Yeah, could, and they're just charging up. It could be that. you know. And it was funny because as I was digging more into farm reports, because I wanted to look into stories of you know back the 1800s or maybe a little bit later, um, of people describing their encounters with these sorts of things and describing it because it happens before the 1947 explosion of the idea of UFOs. People were very matter of fact about you know what they were seeing. They'd say, oh, I saw a right. tin can, you know. But what people were saying is that they were seeing these balls of light. But some people in the eight, late 1800s or early 1900s, just when power lines were being installed, right? This is in Australian farms. They're reporting that they're seeing pie tins throwing cables over <laughs> telegraph or power lines. Pie tins. Yeah. Because, but a massive pie tin was the way it was described, all right. right? I'm like, so it's, what, a what? it's a flying saucer. It had thrown a cable out over a power line and seemingly was taking power from the power line. What? What, what are these things doing? I mean, Low you battery. Can, but you can travel across the universe allegedly or interdimensionally. Why are you taking yeah, power from a power line? They parked the flying saucer and one of them left the lights on. <laughs> The new guy. It's easier than getting it from a Tesla supercharger, I suppose. So, um, But this kind of ties into this next story that I'm going to go into because all of this and all the elements of this story kind of pale in comparison to the story of Cecil Denny McGann, who reported this to Bill Chalker. In fact, Bill Chalker is the uh, only researcher that has dug into this in any great detail. And the reason why Bill has this story is because the person who experienced it, Cecil, came forward in 1985. This is another Australian, I presume. This is another Australian. So this relates to Fernvale, which is, the story is known as the terror, in fact, Cecil called it the terror on the Tweed, right? So the Tweed is um, like down in a region which is just kind of near the Gold Coast. It's probably what, Ben, less than 200, maybe around 200 kilometres from where we are. Right, still a bit too far. It's a little bit too far. Yeah, we won't go that far. Well, this this happened in 1927 as well. So unless we have oh, a time okay. machine, uh, we're probably not going to be getting through. But yeah, I mean, this this young kid, he was 10 years old. Cecil was 10 years old 
when something very strange happened at his family's dairy farm. Okay, so you can see why I've set this up with farms and weird sightings and energy and all this kind of stuff, because it seems like this particular location, this dairy farm at Fernvale, it's a 200-acre dairy farm. Uh, it's Australia's answer to Skimwalker Ranch, but back in 1927. So in 1985, when Bill Chalker receives this 19-page letter from Cecil, he's kind of dumbfounded because he's describing a series of very strange events that seemingly just suddenly descended upon this dairy. And it was just, you got to remember, right, it's around the time of the Depression, um, You've got people that are just hardworking, salt of the earth kind of people uh, that aren't, you know, really too worried about talking about and making up stories about, you know, seeing strange things and experiencing strange things. Like they're farmers, and the chores on these particular farms are never completed. Like you're just always so exhausted from working. Yeah, sure. And they they didn't even own the farm. The farm was owned by someone else. They were share farmers, so their job was to maintain the farm, maintain these cows. Um, but on this particular evening, it all started on this hot summer's night where something very bizarre and terrifying descended upon the farm. And it was actually said that the farm was cursed. This is the way that it was kind of said. But the family, because obviously there was no television, the family was sitting out on one of these large sweeping verandas. And as they're out there uh, sitting on the veranda, Cecil says a strange visitor appeared in the eastern sky and this thing kind of ducked and dove and moved about and it was what they thought was a bright star. Like it was this incredibly bright star. But the way that it moved, again, 1927, they don't have a a way to describe really what it is apart from a star, but it fits perfectly what we hear about modern day UFO sightings. It's a bloody pie tin, mate. (laughs) It's a pie tin in the sky. stopped on a dime. It suddenly changed direction. It bobbed up and down. And Cecil was, you know, quite enamored with this thing. And they asked their father, Cecil and his his younger uh, sisters, and the father said, oh, it's a dancing star. And they kind of went, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. So they went inside and, and went to bed. And the following day when they woke up, uh, they were calling the cows. Now, these are, it's really important to point out that these cows are very, very docile. Like they're calm. They're dairy cows. You don't even have to herd them in, essentially. You just open up the, the milking shed and they'd come up for milking and, and it'd all be very relaxed. But the following day after seeing this star, um, one of the herd was missing. And they thought, this is kind of odd. So Cecil and his father go looking for it, and they head into this paddock. So this farm is set up with having five different fields. I think there's three daytime fields and two nighttime ones, and they just move them through them. And they find the cow, right? But the cow is mad. And what I, but I'm, I mean mad as in crazy. And its eyes are all like bulging out of its head. It's and traumatized. It's, it's, it's traumatized. It's extremely terrified by what it had, it had seen, right? And what they noted is like it was um, the way that the eyes were popped out, it was like some unseen force had squished it. Like it was actually a physical. Oh, its eyes its were eyes actually were bulging. bulging out. I thought you meant it was just like surprised. Well, it was also <laughs> surprised and terrified. Like it was terrified, oh, but it was more than that. It was this weird thing. So someone pushed him back in. Well, no, they shot the cow because oh, the cow was that mad. Like that's how that's how bad it was. And Cecil writes that the strange visitor returned to the eastern sky for a second night, and we watched it maneuver around the mountains, and it was much brighter this time than the night before and, and what it was showing us was kind of strange but it eventually disappeared behind one of the mountains now the next day the problems were once again experienced with the milking herd because the, the cows refused to leave the yard 
Like they wouldn't go anywhere near the day paddock that was up on the hill. And so the farmers actually just kind of went, oh, well, they're so spooked by something and they'd seen something odd. So they allowed the herd to stay in the small paddock that was near the house. And this seemed to settle them down. Like they were happy to stay near the house. It's like they wanted to be with the people. Now on the third night, they were actually out waiting to see the dancing star. There'd been two nights they'd seen it and they're looking and they're looking and nothing. Like there's just nothing. But they do report that cows came like running, bellowing up from one of the paddocks and they were wanting to get in. They were clearly spooked by something. The dogs were howling. Um, They went running out with their kerosene lamps trying to calm them down. And they can even hear their neighbours, you know, describing that they could hear, like their neighbours were also tending to their herd as well. Like something had spooked all of the animals in this area. Like it was just really strange how that it had taken place. Like they were in a terror stricken state and they had no idea what was going on. Now, Cecil, he's 10 years old at this time. You know, like he's just, he's confused because this is such a a foreign thing. The parents are obviously confused, but the following day, so this is happening over a few days, the following day after all the cows had gone crazy, they'd left their uh, kerosene lanterns out all night. There was no electricity. Mm. So they left the lanterns out all night, which seemingly calmed the herd down. Three of their cows were now missing. Three. So there's four animals that they've had go go missing. It's getting expensive now. Too. It is getting expensive. Well, it's their responsibility for you know the farmer that owns the farm. You know, right. So they're going to get into trouble if they don't do something about it. So they go wandering and they start uh, heading up into these paddocks and they come to the top of the hill where previously the cows had refused to go in. Like they would not go in, but that's where they found them. And they were lying on their sides. They were dead, the three of them. And these cows, what was strange is that their legs were so badly cut, but it wasn't a cattle mutilation, although it has this feeling to it. Again, this force seemingly had been applied to them. But the reason why all of their legs were so badly cut is because they had... Cr- bashed through a barbed wire fence Uh that divided the two paddocks. Trying to escape something. That's how terrified they were. And he said their eyes, it was, and as a 10-year-old boy, as he's watching this, he said, the look in their eyes is what scared me the most. Again, they were sticking out of their sockets. And they got, they contacted the farm owner and, and he got a vet to come in. And the vet came in and the vet, you know, he's an experienced, you know, um, professional And he's looking around and he's like, it's almost as if, like you would nearly say that they were scared to death. But what the hell would scare cattle like that? And this is seared apparently into Cecil's memory. He's like, he remembers the vet saying this. So Cecil and his father hauled these dead cows with their draft horse and they took it to where they had all this wood and they essentially burnt them, right? And Cecil writes to Bill Chalker. He says, I can remember my father saying, there's something queer going on here. What the hell is frightening the animals in this way? And after this, the property seemed to kind of, um, it calmed down a little bit. But then their closest neighbours started admitting that they had seen lights moving around their fields, that they had had seen strange things in the sky. And one of their other neighbours, a Mr. Smith, had had a terrifying encounter. And Cecil says he knows about this encounter because, again, the parents kept this from the kids because it was just so strange. But Cecil recalls one night waking up when all this was going on to hear the screams of a man crying out for help. Now, his father jumped up out of bed and he goes running down to the bottom of the hill in the house and he finds the neighbour, Mr. Smith, in a very bad shape. He's compl- it's almost like he's like one of the cows. He's panic-stricken. He's terrified. His, his eyes aren't completely bulging out of his head, but metaphorically they are. And uh, he says that 
he had been walking home from the school. There'd been a meeting at the school. And on walking home, he was confronted with an apparition or something that should not be. And it terrified him so much that he lost his boots, like he had rain boots on. Lost his boots? He lost his boots. And he ran past three other homes. But this is how disoriented and crazy he was. He ran past three other homes before he got to the homestead of of Cecil and his parents and his and his sisters. So the following day, um, Cecil said that, look, my, my mum and dad were very tight-lipped about what had taken place, but they did ask us to look for Mr. Smith's galoshes. And they do, right? Just outside the school, there was, you know, just mud, and they found his galoshes standing upright in the mud. And it's got this almost odd, like, missing four-on-one kind of element, because it was like, why did he take his shoes off? Like, even if you were terrified by something. Oh, I thought you meant he was just scared and started running so madly that they no, flew off. they're just in the mud standing up. <laughs> he took, he clearly took his shoes off and then ran past three other homes. Like, if he was that terrified, why didn't you seek assistance at the first home you found? But no, he took his shoes off and behaved in a, an irrational way. Like, it's just odd, but very consistent with Skinwalker Ranch kind of style of, you know, people being confused and strange things happening. So they recover his boots and, and get them back, but... They move out. Mr. Smith and his wife, they leave. They get the, the hell out of there. And, um, you know, it says here that, you know, Mr. Smith and his wife lost no time in leaving the district. And whatever this apparition was, you know, we won't know. We end up finding out later on what this apparition is, but we'll, we'll but come back man. to that. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> I've been so, sitting here for 50 minutes and so far zero mentions of Australian <laughs> birdmen. The pressure's on. So Cecil writes to Bill that several interesting incidents happened around this time. I don't recall exactly the order in which they happened, but each of them is clearly emblazoned upon my memory. And so he said things happened like, for example, um, something was interfering with the cattle. Something was upsetting them. And there was this particular incident where they had uh, pigs on the property. And they had around 20 pigs of various ages at all sort of times. And there was always three that were in a sty getting fattened because they would have excess milk or waste milk. And they would use this waste milk to fatten up these pigs. This sty was um, kind of into the hill. And there was no way of getting out of there unless you were able to unlock the gate or if you were able to go up, Mm. right? And that's very important. So these pigs get to about 200 pounds, 225 pounds when they sell them, maybe 220 pounds. And there's always three in there. So one morning, as Cecil goes down to feed the pigs, he finds that uh, two of the pigs are dead and one is missing. And he's like, what, what the hell is going on? So he calls his father. And at first he's like, well, maybe they were killed by dingoes or wild dogs, but they get close and they realize that that's not what happened. It's not dingoes or wild dogs. And normally, and this is kind of the idea is that maybe dingoes or wild dogs were spooking the cattle, but cattle will just trample them. Normally dingoes and dogs are very apprehensive about getting anywhere near cattle. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just something. Well, with these pigs, when they look closer, they say there's puncture wounds around the neck area. And guess what? They're drained of blood. It's the chupacabra. Well, maybe. Like, these two, these two pigs, these two massive pigs are completely drained of blood. It's like they've got scratches and puncture marks all over their bodies. This didn't happen to any of the other animals. No. So why the pigs? Exactly. So, you've got these two pigs. They burnt these carcasses like they burnt the other cows. Uh, but there's another pig missing. Like, it's just, it's really strange. Now, I'm sure that pig is fine. 
Oh, no, 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 that big shows up later on. <laughs> so that afternoon, right, that the cows were restless once again and thinking, oh, here we go again. And the cows start to gather near this spot that was about 150 yards away. And uh, it was kind of up this steep incline. Now, the other thing I have to add with the pig, right, remember how I said that you, know, you couldn't get out unless you went through? Well, the gate was closed. So the only way the pig could have gone was up. Flying, flying pigs. Flying pig, exactly, when pigs fly. So the cows start going crazy this following day. And they're getting themselves into a frenzy and more of the cows start going over and they go over, right? The Cecil and his father, they go and they find this huge patch of grass that was covered in a circle of blood. Like it was a circle mm. of blood. Now the farm owner brings in the vet once again who confirmed that yes, it was pig's blood. There was bits of pig's hair in there. Uh, it seemed to match the missing pig. They couldn't say exactly, but it seemed to match. And so it was a real mystery where this pig's carcass was, like where it had been lifted still, out of the sty. I've just got a feeling he's fine. I'm know. sure he's fine, right? <laughs> um, Any horses affected? Uh, it doesn't say anything about horses, but the most of the animals that were on the property were being disturbed by wow. by what was a happening. Full on Brazilian barbecue going on. Well, yeah. <laughs> so uh, obviously, you know, Cecil points out that both of his parents were clearly very nervous, and his father had lived in the bush all of his life, and he'd never heard anything like this. He'd never seen anything like this. Um, and the Cecil was sleeping out on the veranda, and he was getting so terrified by this that his father actually moved his bed into the parents' bedroom because this incessant noise kept on keeping them up at night. Like this noise was coming out of nowhere. And it was this kind of womp noise is the only way to describe it. It was like a, a romp, romp, womp noise. This is how it sounded. Like low three, frequency. Three different sounds. Well, maybe yeah, low frequency, but three different sounds, but like that. Did right? it sound mechanical? Did it sound organic? What? Yeah, well, there was some, uh, yeah, it doesn't say exactly. It's just that it was romp, romp, romp. But there Why are, didn't they record it with their iPhones? Because it's 1927. But there were um, some idea, that, yeah, they may have had a mechanical tone to it, right? But they were so freaked out by this that the entire family closed the windows and doors. The normally obedient dogs would not stay outside. The cows, which were normally rested near the house, they all took off. Like the, the cows were nowhere to be seen. And it was like there were three things two or three things that were around the farm that were talking to each other. Huh? Like they, this is what this noise was. It was like they were communicating oh. amongst them. Now, the following morning, the, the rest of the night is completely uneventful. The night passes and without incident. But the following morning, Cecil's mother, who was always the first one to rise, noticed something weird. She's like, we locked all the doors. We closed all the windows. But because of the style of Australian farmhouses, right, basically your front door and your back door, uh, and you've got a hallway down the middle, so they, they join, their front door and their back door was completely open, like wide open. And she's like, that's kind of weird. So Cecil and his father and the other children go out about their chores. And when they come home, the mother's disturbed. Like she's really disturbed. And they say, what happened? She can't keep it down. She's like, okay, I, when I woke up, there were footprints walking through the house and like, what? So I cleaned them up because I didn't want to say anything after that noise. But the footprints were strange. They were definitely, they seemingly were human footprints, right? They were made from mud that was near the front steps of the house and led right through the house. And they looked like the treads of a Wellington boot, as in like the rubber boots. Like, remember how he took them off? The guy, But he'd move. Yeah. Like the other guy had moved. But she said, what was strange is that these footprints, it was only the front of the foot. There was no heel. And it was just all through the house. Now, normally these dogs, they would stop anyone coming anywhere near the house. They didn't hear a single sound. There is, they cannot understand how anything could approach without the dogs letting them know. Are and they, somehow it did. Are they sure it was the same print? 
That's the guy's boots? They say it just looks like that. Okay. So it's Wellington boots, but they don't know what it is, right? So there's two consecutive nights of disturbing noises. Um, the house seems to be plagued by just this mysterious procession of weird phenomena that had descended upon the property. And Cecil writes that the strange thing about it was that we never heard the noises at night anymore. And things seemed to kind of return to normal for a while. But that's when the light in the sky showed up again. And they're going on about their lives, right? Yeah, all this strange stuff is happening. Their animals are spooked, but they're still kids, right? They're living their lives. So there's this one particular evening where they went to um, the neighbor's house. And the the neighbor's house, you've got to cross over uh, three separate creeks and there's planks of wood and fallen trees. And they all know this because they've lived there for a long time. So they know how to travel through there. And it was dark, but they go. So Cecil and his older brother, Tom, go to this near property. And when they were returning from the property, they were playing a fun night of games and and cards and, and whatever. When they were returning, they claimed that they saw what was like a lantern in the sky. And just as they'd crossed their property barrier, it's almost like even though it was their property, it was like they crossed back into this high strangeness. They observed this light approaching from the south. And it's about the size of the moon, but it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it's over the top of them. And it's this large, round, dull light that was shining from something that was like connected to a round cylinder-shaped object with a dome on top and it passes overhead. They get a great view of it. It starts to hiss and then lights up the entire area in this dazzling light. Like Everything is lit up. They can see all the back paddocks. They can see... And this thing goes over and lands in one of these paddocks. It lands in the paddock. And Cecil writes that he and his brother at first thought it was a uh, falling star, but they were like, what What is this thing? Uh, they don't know what a UFO is. Yeah, there's no got, flying no, saucer stories. There's, no there's stories, nothing like there's that. Not like really any type of sci-fi to be able to describe so, it. The giant cake tin just landed. That's right. So they, um, they see this thing and then they rush inside because they are freaked out, connected with all the high strangeness. And the following day, the neighbours show up. And the neighbour's like, oh, um, we just wanted to make sure you got home okay. And like, oh, yeah, but something flew over. I'm like, yeah, we know. We saw it because we were watching you boys to make sure you got home. We saw this thing fly over. It landed in a field and it stayed there glowing for hours, right? So they all, what, what did they do? Nothing they, got out? No, they all go up there. They all go up there and they find a circular patch of brown grass, which kind of fit exactly where the object had landed. Mm. It was scorched 30 feet in diameter. So something hot had landed there and it didn't explode. It wasn't a meteorite. It was something that had landed and it was described by the boys, as I said, as being like a cylinder with a dome on the top with a light underneath. What are these kids experiencing? Like this is very, yes, it sounds like a UFO, but it's also consistent with reports of what we hear from Skinwalker Ranch. It's like, this bubbling of energy is coming up and this stuff is being seen. So look, by mid-morning, news of this had travelled around the town and locals actually came from all around town to look at the landing site because they were amazed by what they had seen in this, this scorched grass. And, you know, as I pointed out, no one knew what UFOs were. So there was all these theories that were kind of being thrown out as to what it was. But very quickly, the event was forgotten by the town. But to Cecil, this was an episode in his life that was now instilled in his memory. And it had basically traumatized him. It was these spine-chilling events that it seemed like his family had been singled out to become victims of either a test or an experiment or who knows what this thing is. Like, what was this craft that was clearly, he said this craft was clearly under control and manned by something. But what? Who knows? The bird people, obviously. Well, you're right there because Cecil (laughs) 
following this describes a very startling observation. Oh, I thought that was the end of the story. I was about to get angry at you. No, wait. (laughs) He says, I was on my way to school where I look up and I see something sitting in a tree. Oh my gosh. It's six feet high sitting on the dead limb of a tree right near our school. It's plumage. Was it perched? It's perched. It's plumage shone in the sun. It was standing erect like a penguin. It was a massive bird man. It's the only, like, he's like, it's a bird. But when you look at the the drawing of it, and I'll put a I'll drawing of this. Now. Okay, I'll send it through to you. So just gonna get this for you, Ben. David Wilcock confirmed. <laughs> Not quite. Okay, let me just send this through to you. It's from have, the Avian Secret Space Program. Have a look at the show notes because this is what he saw. Oh, weird. Isn't it weird? It's, it's Mothman-esque, but also, yeah, totally a penguin, not a moth. So he sees this thing, and he's shocked by whatever it is, and so he goes running inside, and he tells his teacher, and all the kids, and they all come running outside, and guess what? It's gone. It's gone. That's so creepy. He look goes home, and he tells his parents about what he had seen, and his parents both look shocked, but not because he'd seen a giant bird. They say to him, the apparition that Mr. Smith saw was a giant bird, a giant oh. bird man on the road as he was coming home from the school. So it was the same location where he had been. This is where it takes a noticeable um, acceleration in the phenomena. Because following this later on, after he would uh, was crossing through with his brothers, he was crossing through the mountain kind of area and over the paddocks. He said they hear what seems to be talking and laughing and they look up and there are these two giant birds, the same ones he had seen before, soaring overhead. But this time they're bigger they're gliding with their wings outstretched and they're making sounds of like an unintelligible conversation like they're talking to each other much like they'd been sitting before talking to each other in the night that they've been freaking about he's just like this is this is insane uh cecil's sister starts saying that i've seen them too i was out in the veranda one night and i saw this huge bird hopping down the hill flapping its wings what is going on cecil later on finds a three-foot feather that's lying in the yard. It's like this dull type of kind of like a gray kind of feather and immediately almost like gray feather. Mm, We know what this is. Um, Then this is again where it takes another strange turn because the next turn is that one night the entire, like this region of families, um, they would get together and the neighbors would go to the other houses, right? And this particular evening, I think it was Tom who must've been the older brother of one of the older brothers of Cecil. um, He'd decided to stay home. Right, but it's almost like this has to happen for a reason because as these, this family, all these families are at one of the neighbor's houses, they say it's really strange because a strange man dressed in a white suit appears in the house. Like he comes in and no one talks to him. No one pays any attention to him because they think that he's with one of the other neighbor's families. Oh, what? And the guy just comes in, spends a few moments kind of just acting strange and then leaves. Now, what? Is he in regular clothing? No, he's in a white suit, like a white dapper kind like of suit. Like a tux? Like what, a, not what a tux, do you mean a white but like suit? A, but think of a man in black, but a man in white. Okay. Like this is what this, now you can go, well, that's odd. Like that's, that's really strange, but also a color that might be almost similar to like the birds. You know, it's like what, and this is something that Cecil points out. He's like, there was always two of everything. Because this particular evening, while Tom was back at home, Tom said, and we've worked it out, it was around the same time, Tom claims that he hears a noise in the house and he sings out who's there. Mm. He doesn't hear anything. He gets out of bed to see someone in a white suit disappearing into the darkness who had just been in the home. Now, he didn't know about what was happening with the rest of the neighbor. Like, what are these... What are these creatures, right? Now, the mystery is here is how did this stranger manage to visit both houses on a pitch black night when 
you've got to cross these creeks and only people that would live there would know where the planks of wood would be, where the fallen trees would be to not get... And these, these suits were immaculate. Like, were these the creatures that were wearing the Wellington boots that were walking through the house? Is this the man in the white suit? Is that what walked through the house and, and terrified them? And this is kind of where it ends, right, in this 19-page letter. Um, and this is 1985. This, this was written to Bill Chalker. And he says something along the lines of, look, there's other things that have happened, but, you know, I can't really verify them. So, you know, I'm not going to report. Maybe I'll write them down and I'll leave them to you one day. And it was like, it kind of left there until... In 1999, Cecil got back in contact with Bill Chalker and he wrote him a letter. It was a full typed document entitled Terror on the Tweed, My Story in Full. And so there's a few elements that kind of come in here, right? That kind of add to this the strangeness of what was happening. So like when the um when those cows had gone missing, he actually says that um when the big paddock where we allowed them to graze that was around the house. He said he walked up to the ridge of the paddock and he says there was this strange scene that confronted him because looking down on the ridge were two objects. And he's like, he couldn't quite tell what they were. They were amid the bushes about halfway down the ridge and they were moving about. But he claims that they look like small gray elephants. Elephants? Elephants that were moving about. And he says, look, I now- What the hell is going on? He says, look, I now know that maybe they were wearing spacesuits. But it caused quite a laugh for my family. But they're not, they're bipedal or not? They're on all fours? It sounds like they're on all fours, but wearing some type of gray suit kind of thing. And that's why he described them as elephants. But these things were, were moving around. And at the moment that he looks back, they disappear. Um, there was more vampiric kind of events that was taking place. Uh, that pig carcass showed up once again. Oh, he was fine. It wasn't the pig. What do you mean? Another pig carcass that had nothing to do. It was not theirs. It was no neighbors. They they searched every. The pig carcass showed, and you did exactly the same thing. Or they did the same thing as you. Been like, oh, the carcass has shown up. This is. The, it wasn't their pig. So there's still a chance that pig there's is still okay. There's still a chance that pig is okay. Yes. All right, thank you. But it was almost like this thing had been copied somehow and then thrown back in, like it had, had manifested. Now Cecil also reports that um, he had this like a uh, growth in his groin around this time, right? And this growth became infested and it seemingly kind of like grew out of his body and had this, and it was said that- Elephantitis. Yeah, maybe elephantitis. Um, But this thing happened, right, around the time that all this phenomenon was taking place. And the night that they were looking for the cows, he adds this detail. He says, around midnight, we hear a car coming onto our property. Now, there are three um, gates on their property, each of them with different locks because um, the horses apparently were smart enough to be able to work out how to open the gates. So each had three locks. Each of them you had to get out and, and fiddle. It's 1927. Cars are rare, but they're not common, mm. right? This shiny new kind of style car shows up as they're looking for the cows, drives onto their property, past them, and they said they can see two figures inside but can't see inside it seemingly drives through the three gates completely uninhibited (laughs) stays down there at the bottom of the hill for a few moments turns around and then just drives off in front of them and then disappears it's like a brand new ford yeah shining silver weird men in black kind of creatures wheels don't touch the road it's just so surreal and this is all happening now with those what's mostly surreal about this is the fact that this is the 1920s Exactly. It's it just reeks. It reeks of a John Keel story Absolutely. from the 1970s or 60s. Absolutely, it does. Now, um, he says that after he had this horrible you know, 
thing, this swelling come up in his groin. He was taken to hospital and um, it was said that he was suffering from jaundice or a fever of some kind, but ultimately he was getting worse and worse. The doctors just said to him, take him home because there's nothing else they can do for him. So he was actually taken home to die. And the weird element in this story is, is that they left him, they still had to work, right? So they left him in the house and there was a local cattle inspector or something that liked Cecil. So he came to the house to go and check on Cecil while the farm was down at the dairy. And when he checked on Cecil, he wasn't in the house. So he walked down to the dairy to say to the family, you know, Cecil's not there. They found Cecil inside a wardrobe. What? They found him inside a wardrobe in the dairy. Like he'd somehow teleported there. Isn't it weird? Now they're what like, memory oh. does he have of that? No memory. They were just like, oh, he can walk, so he must be recovering. And he did, right? But it's like, he has no recollection of this whatsoever. So it's like, he says, look, I don't know if it could have contributed to the previous events, but it seems strange that all this happened straight after the visit of the strange things that made the noise in the night. I don't so, trust these bird men. In conclusion, he if writes- If you find any giant eggs, just kick them. Well, he says there was two of each. There was two Did birds. Did they find any giant eggs? No, no, no. But there was two <laughs> or a birds, big nest. two men, uh, and you'd always see the two things in, in space suits, but yes, there was one car. So, I mean, this is a, a truly remarkable case. Like, it's a remarkable series of events, but unfortunately, because it's so far back, it's not like Bill could do anything about it. It's not like he could really go and investigate. But of course, you know, because he is a good researcher, Bill Chalker actually did look into other reports, right, to see if there was anything that was similar. And he actually found there was a uh, an author by the name of Ron Johansson. He wrote a series in a local uh, newspaper called Tales of Our Times, and this was published in September of 1957 echoes the McGann family's experience almost identically. Really? The same stuff was happening in the Tweed district, but on a local farm decades later. Same stuff. Same stuff. What? So the whole point of this episode has been about these energy zones, right? A lot of high stress. We seem to think that it's kind of a unique, each and every kind of experience is independent and not connected. It seems like certain locations cause like a doorway opening that's an energy release that cause these things to appear and some are more active than others in some locations you might have a trapping of entities which causes you know a lot of ghost manifestations to take place and other locations you might have the uh you know apparition or the appearance of crop circles well, i or just asked a chat gpt if there's any other weirdness in the tweed district and they said there's the talabudra ghost which is an old haunting. There's the Marua Limbug Monk. <laughs> I don't believe that. And there's a, a buried treasure there as well. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, this, but this particular location seems to be more of a hotbed than others, much like perhaps the Skinwalker Ranch. The activity kind of coincides. And the fact is that, that, that you know, you've got a report from 1957 that echoes the McGann's experience. It's, like, it's not like he could have, like, that particular report, could have picked up on what was happening in 19, 1927 on the ranch because it wasn't reported until 1985. So really unusual stuff mm-hmm. to sink your teeth into. I'll link to all of it in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can read all about those uh, those sightings and those experiences because it's just, um, it's nice when I hear stories like this that are close to home. It's terrifying, but it's also you know, incredibly fascinating. What a bizarre story, especially, I was waiting for that bird man, that bird man. Yeah, that's isn't a it, creepy isn't it image. Creepy. I'll show you the back as well, Ben, because they they did see it from the back. There's a it's, back shot. It, it's oh, a, there's a booty shot. No, it's not a booty shot. Uh, let me. Did I'm, they ever see its feet? No, they didn't say. Does but it, have a look does at it that. Have claws. Look at the back. 
It's just weird. Oh, he's been working out. <laughs> so both of those images will be in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can check it out. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org to check out the show notes. We'll have all the links there. And while you're there, check out mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. It gives you uh, all the details on the big extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. There's a big extension coming up. I'm going to be going into Jenny Radcliffe's new work, People Hacker Confessions of a Burglar for Hire. This is the professional penetration tester, the professional social engineer who has hacked into nearly a thousand locations, a thousand buildings across the world. We're going to hear about her escapades in Hamburg running from angry German bankers. Uh, We're going to hear about her her exploits in Liverpool growing up, how she uh, made her first break-in at the age of nine years old. A really fascinating story coming up. Really looking forward to telling you this one, People Hacker. Uh, That's coming up in plus again, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there. Sign up today. You get access to the extensions every single Friday. And of course, plus members get an entirely exclusive extra show every single Tuesday. Uh, You also get a higher quality audio version of the show, higher bitrate feed, totally ad-free version of the show as well. And if you sign up for the tier above, the MU Max tier, you get access to our massive, massive back catalogue of shows. Again, check it out, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. That's a wrap for this free edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you're on plus, stick around for all the good stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us. Yeah, this.